Welcome to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. In this series, Disruptive Engineers, we'll be hosting conversations with industry leaders who are working on cutting edge technologies in quantum computing, cybersecurity, green technology, artificial intelligence, and more. I'm your host, Samantha Wallravens. Today, I'm sitting down with Tom Chavez, the co-founder and CEO of Catch, and the co-founder and general partner of Superset to discuss his impressive career and how he uses data, decision science, and artificial intelligence to solve challenging problems. Tom is a technology entrepreneur who builds companies that help businesses navigate the world of big data, analytics, and artificial intelligence. He's founded a number of companies, uh, including Crux, which he sold to Salesforce, in 2016, I believe, for $700 million, and Wrapped, which he sold to Microsoft in 2008 for $180 million. So he had some super successful exits, which we'll discuss. His current company, Catch, just raised $23 million in a Series A. At the same time, in his free time, Tom is the founder and CEO of Superset, which is a startup studio that incubates and funds technology companies in the area of of big data. Tom has a PhD in engineering systems from Stanford University and an undergraduate degree in computer science and philosophy from Harvard. Tom, again, a huge, huge thank you for being here and welcome. So there are three areas that I like to cover today. One is your background and the ingredients for success as an entrepreneur. Two is your businesses and the problems that they're solving. And three, what it means to be a disruptive engineer in today's innovation innovation ecosystem. So to get started, I was reading just a bit about your background, which is quite extraordinary. You grew up in a family with five kids in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Your parents are first-generation immigrants who did not go to college, yet you and all four of your siblings, all five of you, graduated from Harvard. So my, my question was, I was going to ask, what do your parents put in your Cheerios? But I guess the better way of saying it is, what about your upbringing has contributed to your tremendous success? Well, I get this a lot, Samantha. And, you know, I'm, I was one of five kids. I was the middle kid, by the way. And I'm a parent as well. So I marvel at it a little bit, too. I wish I had a, you know, a tidy answer for you. I think I was lucky to be born into a family with two fabulous parents who were just so perfectly committed to their children and their children's success. It was a family, you know, as I like to say, we, we were at the bottom of the middle class. So we always had food on the table. It was a three-bedroom house where we all kind of cramped in together. There was a lot of love, but it was, you know, it was humble circumstances. And, and I think one of the things that was motivational for all of us was just to understand from our parents that, you know, we had to end up and be counted. We had to make our own way. My mom has this amazing way. We, my brothers and sisters and I have said, you know, if it were a different time, my mom, you know, she'd have founded Google and would be running Amazon as a side hustle. You know, she's just a very organized, fierce woman. I remember being a little boy and, and she would say to all of us, three things you need to know, God, family, education, in that order, don't forget it. And there was a little bit of luck, right? Because I think having five kids who were down for the program who had sort of the raw ability to keep up and to make good on the opportunities my parents were providing. You know, that was, that was uh, not to be taken for granted either, but it all comes down to my parents. I owe them a lot. So there was no rebellious 
sibling in the group who said, I'm out of here. I'm going to go surf the world and take a takeoff. Now I'm a parent myself and, you know, kids, when they rebel, there's capital R rebellion and then there's small R rebellion. I think um, the small R rebellion was my brother wanted to play in a rock band for a couple months in senior year. And I remember that being a big kerfuffle. My sister had a boyfriend. There was no dating in our house when we were in high school because there was no time. You had to focus on your studies. So small, small little things like that. But yeah, I mean, it's it, again, it's remarkable that nobody sort of threw their hands up or upturned the table and said, "No, nah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this anymore." So you go to Harvard, graduate with a philosophy, computer science, dual major. You go work as a systems engineer for a software company. So tell me about Wrapped. And I was reading that you started the company as a supply chain management business in 1999, but you pivoted in a pretty significant way. Can you tell us what happened with that company and why you had to pivot or decided to pivot? Yeah. So I I was in graduate school at Stanford in in applied math. I had developed some techniques, the mathematical techniques for pricing and procurement optimization. So I left, I started Wrapped. And the origin of the company, the premise of it was supply chain optimization for companies like Sun Microsystems, Apple, Hewlett Packard became customers, Seagate. Complex supply chains, high stakes decisions about how much of these expensive assets to position in the supply chain and how to price your product for, for optimal profit. And it was hot, 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 you know, in the, at the height of that fire bubble in 99. And then of course, everything crashed in, two, in 2000. So, this is my first company. I was, I was much younger than it was 40, you know, it was rough. And the asset is that our core vertical, they were buying, but everybody had seized up and said, listen, I'm not going to take any risk on small upstart companies. If I have to buy supply chain software, I'm mostly just going to buy it from Oracle and SAP. Right. So it was this really sort of pride swallowing sort of soul sucking siege getting into the market, selling to those customers. And this is one of those places as an entrepreneur where stay open-minded, pick up the phone and be ready to revise at any moment. So there was a company called Yahoo who called us and they said, listen, we're having problems optimizing value from our advertising inventory. We're always oversold and undersold. And we don't think we're doing this very well. Do you think you could help us? Now at the time I knew nothing about advertising, but we picked up the phone. Yahoo opened the gate a little bit for us, and we were able to sort of point all of our technology that we developed for the pricing of servers at Hewlett Packard and purchasing of microprocessors for Sun. We were able to point it at advertising inventory for Yahoo, and that was the beginning of this big, big, big crossing over for the company. So there's an article that Business Insider, I remember, wrote. So we landed the company, as you pointed out, we sold it for $180 million, which was good. No, it wasn't a supernova by the standards of Silicon Valley, but it was, uh, you know, we landed the plane. There was this article in Business Insider that described sort of the biggest pivots in tech of all time. And I must tell you, I'm really, really proud of Wrapped being rendered as one of the biggest pivots of all time, right? Because to go from supply chain to internet media, you know, it was a big leap, took a lot out of us. But by the end of the journey, we garnered basically all of the leading web destinations. They'd become customers of Wrapped. And that was the prelude to Microsoft's acquisition. In your book, you talk about, we'll get to the book more later, but you do talk about having a child's mindset. You said the success, most successful marketers have a child's mindset. 
And it made me think about entrepreneurs as well. Can you talk a little bit about this child's mindset and what that means? Yeah, look, it's, it's so funny, Samantha, we're talking about this because right before this meeting, we're having my staff meeting for catch. And I was saying, listen, you know, especially when you're doing early stage tech, but, but at any stage really of business building, there are going to be surprises and gotchas. And I like to note these days that things that used to take three years at Wrapped to unfold today happen in three months, right? Everything is just so fast. The velocity of markets, it's just insane. So Letting go of this idea. So we engineers are trained to do the math, get the answer, you're right or you're wrong, right? So letting go of all of that when it comes to entrepreneurship and understanding that A, nobody knows the answer. And it's not because they're lazy or stupid. It's that things are moving too fast and the answers themselves are noble. Where, where your company's going to be two years from now, based on how the markets have unfolded, you just, you, you can't pinpoint it. You can't have these steady little safe plans that proceed from A to B and then on, onward to C, you gotta get on that swivel and you have to be ready to revive and iterate. How do you do that? You have to be like a child. Five-year-old, six-year-old kids are just a marvel, right? Because they're not afraid to ask why because they're using their words. Why, why is that, right? That's one of the questions we love to ask with our teams over and over again. What makes you say that? Like, give me your reasons, teach me what's going on there. So I would just argue like it's, it's necessary just to survive in, in the, at least the business that I've, I've chosen for myself. But I would also offer that, you know, it just makes things so much more interesting, right? Like I just don't wanna be bored. I'm still in it to win it, right? I'm still getting kicked in the head. I've told people like I'm making mistakes today, but please let them be new mistakes. It's that Tom Cruise movie, Edge of Tomorrow, which I love, you know, <laughs> you die in that ditch you know, 35 times, well, stop dying in the same ditch. Try, try, try a different move, right? But it just makes it so much more gratifying and fun, I think. If you're working with people, you're solving a puzzle together and you're carrying yourself like children do. For sure. And so you sell Wrap to Microsoft and then two years later, you start your next business, Crux. In, in the book, it's called a, a data management platform, but you don't really like that term, which I want to ask you about. But Tell me about the idea, which you said is who's looking at the screen is more important than what's on the screen. So tell us about Crux and what you mean, what, what the problem is that it's solving. Yeah, so Crux and, and one company leads to another, right? One conversation always leads to another when you're working as an entrepreneur. So going back just a minute to Microsoft, when I was hanging my head at Microsoft after the acquisition of RAP, we're in one of these staff meetings where there were the early rumblings of a movement away from just advertising, right? Businesses like Microsoft were, were peddling advertisements through MSM and then software that enabled movement and settling and tracking and, and delivery of the ads. But it started to become clear that the price of the ad and, and the rectangle on the screen was becoming more and more fungible. There was no intrinsic value to it because it turns out, you know, if I can take this rectangle and sell it to a hedge fund manager on the East Coast who manages a portfolio of, of over $500 million or whatever. The who, right? The, the, the person looking at the ad is in that case, exactly who Ameritrade wants and Ameritrade will pay up, right? For that interaction. So this, there was this kind of big tectonic shift in the industry towards, ah, it's about the data. It's not about the ad, it's about the data fueling the ad. 
And for us at Crux, we look at this the way engineers do it and say, well, got a lot of systems out there for shipping ads. We got a lot of systems out there for accounting web pages, right? Analytics offerings, but there doesn't seem to be any good software for doing just data and doing it well. In 2010, it was a slightly contrarian thing, but we, we thought it was cool. And that's part of what, what, you know, when I get involved in a business, yeah, you want to persuade yourself that you've got a good business in a big market with customers who are willing to pay and all that good stuff. At the core of it, at least for me, it just has to be cool. Like there's something cool and unsolved in there. And we could really like, you know, nosh on that boat for a long time. Again, you just don't know. You can't know exactly how it's going to unfold. So you make these kinds of hard commitments to what you think are sort of enduring non-negotiable premises. And in the case of Crux, also having learned a bunch of lessons from first company route, right? And lessons about how to think it through, how to blueprint the business, how to stage and sequence it in a more disciplined way. I can tell you it worked a lot better <laughs> the second time having learned many of those lessons from the first one. And your book is really interesting because it's really a playbook for companies who want to develop a data strategy to better engage their customers, right? To delight their customers. But for me, I have to tell you, Tom, it was a real wake-up call on how all of our personal data is really out there. It's on social media, it's on websites, it's on you know, online banking, it's all out there in digital form, which makes me really nervous and which leads to the problem of data and, and privacy issues. So my next question is really about data privacy and security. First part, what are the dangers you see in this data-driven world that we're in, especially around privacy and trust and security? And two, what responsibility do you as an entrepreneur have to help consumers and businesses protect their data? Yeah, look, it's, it's so important and it's so urgent that that's what I'm dedicating the next decade of my life to in, in the build out of this company Catch that we've started. So my team and I were in the boiler room, not ourselves, but all of the technology that we built in the last two companies were about helping marketers gather and manage data and then interoperate with the advertising platforms that they, you know, if you're a marketer, you can run, but you can't hide. You have to deal with Google. You have to deal with Facebook, right? And so in that context, um, I can tell you, we got a, a firsthand, very informed view of the shenanigans and wildly anti-competitive things that, that the big tech companies do and, and in the way that they disrespect our data dignity. I'm out there with it these days. So there's been a lot of hemming and hawing around these topics for too long, I feel. A lot of these companies have not treated consumers fairly or well. Now, a lot of consumers are, are ready to just trade off the security and privacy of their data in exchange for utility and convenience. But even so, I think that the drums continue to beat and people are coming to a sharper realization of the perils of having all of this personal data loose. And so what we're doing at Catch, we have a new regime. People might be aware of this, this European law called GDPR. California has a privacy law called CTPA. Virginia just passed its own privacy law. So it's not just talk anymore. People are passing laws with teeth and regulations and fines and penalties if businesses are found to be infringing on, on privacy in ways that are inconsistent with those laws. So that's good. 
we have a, a privacy regime that's, that has a lot of rules. And our belief is that most businesses want to do the right thing, right? They want to be responsible stewards of our, of our data. What they need are tools to help them get it right, right? So Catch is in the business of delivering tools that help businesses honor our privacy, um, control data responsibly, where it goes, how it's used, for how long, by who, and why. And there we are again. It's a cool set of technical puzzles that nobody's really, really solved. Um, we think this is going to keep us busy for a long time. And, and Samantha, I really appreciate your question because it's God's work. <laughs> we think that we, we're sort of on a mission here to, to, to help the planet get this right. You know, we do fight on certain days a good amount of apathy, right? Because you have businesses, one of our customers early before we got to them said that they were hiding in the herd. I love that line. Uh, this privacy thing, is it, does it really affect us? They'll, they'll pick up other people first before they get to us. And we like to point out that, you know, okay, if you want to take that strategy, good luck, right? Importantly, that customer chose otherwise. We're at that stage of the market, I think, where a lot of companies are coming to a realization still as to the requirements that they have legally to get this right. But setting aside the legal dimension, what are the consumer benefits? What are the benefits for their customers and their consumers of demonstrating good data stewardship, right? It's a brand building opportunity. It's a way to, to increase trust with your customers. And we see many more customers of ours now moving in that direction. So it's encouraging. At the end of your book, Data Driven, you make a really bold prediction about the future which I find fascinating and talk about disruption. This is like crazily disruptive. You predict that we as consumers will soon have the ability to control our own data and sell it to companies um, with offers that interest us. I think you called this data for dollars and you say that blockchain technology will make this possible. So explain this in a little more detail because I think this is super, super cool. Talk about cool, super cool. <laughs> Yeah, look, the best way to, to operate if you're predicting the future is to just go up and try to make it so. And that is, by the way, one of the elements of what we're building at Catch, this idea of a personal data vault. You think about it, right? What we've done is we, too many of us just gave our data to Facebook, literally just gave it to them. And they've turned it into a company worth, whatever it's worth today, $700 billion. In the history of business, you've never seen anything quite like this, right? Where just all of the assets are given wholesale to another company. Okay, it's providing a service, but let's, you know, it's providing a product, but in this case, you are the product, right? And, and the point is that there's immense value in the data that powers Facebook's business model. So why wouldn't we try to do a reset and really get that right? Put that control back into the hands of its rightful owner, the consumer. And over time now, technology can enable that. The particulars of how we do it are admittedly a little complex, right? Because capturing these little speckles of, my name is Tom and here are my, my interests here. You know, I, I like hip hop music, I like food, I live in, in San Francisco. You're, you're building sort of a three-dimensional data-driven picture of me, which is valuable to the marketers and other businesses who want to talk to me. So gathering those little speckles, 
of data, putting them into a central place, giving me the controls to provision who gets to see it when and why and for what price. Okay, we, we know how to build these kinds of systems. It's actually not as much of a technical puzzle as it is kind of a market question, right? How do you create enough energy around this possibility for more and more consumers to participate? By the way, this is another one of those exercises in delayed gratification. It won't happen in a month or a year. But our bet is that over the coming decade, you will certainly see more, more and more consumers sort of rising up, taking ownership of their personal data signatures and, and looking for tools like this. Will it be 80% of the population? Samantha, I doubt it. But I, I conjecture that there will be a, you know, in steady state 20 to 30% of the population who's, who starts to care about this. And we think that that's necessary. It's an honorable way to proceed. By the way, it's also just a market-based you know, requirement, right? So, so that's, that's where we think that's all headed. And will that happen using blockchain technology? Will your will a personal data vault be located on a blockchain? Is that how you foresee this happening? I think that that becomes one very useful mechanism, one useful path to that end. My technical co-founder is a guy named Vivek. I've worked with him for 20 plus years. He's actually only half jokingly mandated that people may not talk about blockchain anymore <laughs> in our shop because <laughs> has become a little breathless and caffeinated. And Vivek's view for whatever it's worth is that there are lots of ways to ensure the safety and security of data. Again, blockchain is one good means to that end. Yes, I think that blockchain can become a fabulous and effective way of doing this. So one of the companies that you founded is Escalara. And you don't really hear that much about it, but I'm particularly interested in Escalara because it's in essence an analytics platform that helps businesses measure diversity and inclusion performance, which is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And it's very frustrating for those of us working in this like DNI diversity and inclusion area because the tech industry has been talking about diversity and inclusion for many, many years and putting a lot of dollars towards it, but yet the numbers of women and underrepresented minorities in the tech world is not, they're not budging. So I wanted to ask you about Escalara, what you're doing to change the ratio of uh, women and minorities in tech, how it works and why you're using software to make this change. Why do you think this is the best avenue? Yeah, look, I think if you've got an idea and I'm a biased source here, Samantha, so you probably expect to hear me say something like this, but I do objectively, if you've got an idea and you'd like to see it take root in the world, software is a really terrific way to do it, right? In 2021, especially so much of our lives is, is enabled and by software in ways that we're sometimes conscious of and maybe in other ways where it's just happening implicitly behind the screen and we're, we're less aware of it. So that actually became the sort of founding premise for Escalera. If we want to see inclusion and diversity systematized into businesses, before we even talk about the product and the particulars, commit to software as a means of getting that job done. Now, the second sort of premise for Escalera, and it was implicit in your question as well, is performance. We all know if you run a business, performance that can't be measured, can't be managed. 
And people, I think, in the DNI field, especially because of the way it's unfolded, have a much more qualitative view. And the qualitative, you know, the commitment to principles, of course, matters, right? There, there's a moral imperative to everything we do here. But we also started to reject the idea that you couldn't start to quantify these things. And it's not just the obvious quantification that people do, like what's the percentage of women in senior executive roles? What percentage of Latino uh, engineers do we have in the, in the technical teams and so on? Of course, all of that. That's the easy stuff. The harder piece is how do you use AI and data to actually measure things like employee connectedness and engagement and, and inclusivity in their work. If you're a CEO of a company with 25,000 employees, you have a sense as to what's going on, but you don't really know. And you're crying out for tools that will help you measure and quantify these seemingly unquantifiable aspects. So what's really exciting about Escalera is that we're building employee experiences and tooling that sits alongside all of the existing investments companies have made in HR systems, but it kind of uncorks the, these new techniques for distilling employee sentiments and things like inclusivity, connectedness, engagement, safety in work such that broader array of people from different backgrounds can, can show up and really make their presence felt important. That's what great leaders want. They just haven't had the tools to, to systematize it at scale. So I want to change a little bit in our discussion here. Undergraduate, you majored in computer science and philosophy, which I think is a really interesting combination. And a lot of what we talked about thus far has been, you know, the ethics of what you're doing with data and the ethics, you know, the morality of, um, you know, companies using our personal data, et cetera. So how has your philosophy degree impacted your career in technology? I appreciate the question, you know, because I look back at that. It turns out now that there are more people who do double majors like that. But, you know, I, I graduated a long time ago, so now that at the time it was, it was a weird thing. You know, the university didn't make it easy. You know, I had to go through a lot of extra, jump through a lot of extra hoops to do this double major thing. And so, look, I think for me, it was intriguing to try to find the connecting points between the hard math and, and all the geekier elements of computer science that I was studying at the time with the non-mathematical sort of systemic thinking that a good philosopher brings to some of these questions, right? So obviously lots of different brands of philosophy. Some of them get a little more mystical. The brand of philosophy that I was studying in college was, was analytic philosophy. So there were, actually was a lot of mathematical logic and that was the connecting point. That's how I persuaded them to let me do it. Because you know mathematical logic, computer programming, there's a lot that happens at that intersection. But beyond that was just you know, the consideration of, you know, questions of philosophy and mind, cognition, how do, how do we know a concept is clear? How do, you, how do you talk about a concept? All of those kinds of things, more and more computer scientists pay attention to today than they did before, right? I think a lot of computer scientists in the last decade or two have said, oh my gosh, there's a lot that we could learn from philosophy of mind and cognition and language. Now, as I think about how it's played out for me, 
especially in the context of, of privacy and these kinds of questions, like there are analytic distinctions to be drawn, right? Like you can have strong spiritual commitments to privacy as an essential human right, and, and we get there fast, all of us. But then, okay, now you got to get into the morass of how do you actually make it so? And what's the line between a business who didn't lie, cheat, or steal in the procurement of the data that it uses to dazzle me as a customer? Where's the line between what's good for me versus what's good for them? And what's, what data is co-owned and what data belongs exclusively to just one or the other? Now we're getting into like detailed quasi-philosophical questions. Because, by the way, a lot of these laws haven't prescribed any answers. So it's like green terrain. We got to go and figure it out from scratch. Um, and that's where I find that, you know, this strange thing I wanted to, you know, my, my strange leaning, right, for to do the, the philosophy stuff early is so useful all these years later, right? I didn't, in fact, I haven't programmed, I haven't shipped any code myself in a long time. And... I, you know, I haven't done any hard, hard, I'm an entrepreneur now. I haven't done the hard, hard math I was doing in graduate school in a long time. So sort of like the organized thinking that I got from the philosophy training that I probably use a lot more on an average day than anything else. It's kind of strange to me. So I like to ask you what advice you have for these students who are really our next leaders in technology and business. I take a contrarian view. And in fact, so we're talking about all this computer science stuff. When I graduated, I think there were 11 graduates in computer science in a class of 1600. I think uh, I'm told that it's like more like 450 now. Everybody's excited about computer science. There's a lot of people studying it. And, and the reason I dwell on the computer science, I worry sometimes that people are studying this stuff just because they feel they should. And so my slightly contrarian advice is to try to really latch on to something that you can be passionate about and actually care deeply about, right? Because that's what's gonna fuel you for the long haul. We're also not acutely aware of like by the time the folks are older, well, your life, you know, the average life expectancy is gonna be 86, 90, 95. It keeps going up year over year. So you gotta think about a, a longer arc of your life, right? And uh, as Freud said, love and work, that's all there is, right? Be happy at home, be in love if you can, and love your work because it's gonna, you know, you're gonna be around for a while. And, and so I guess I'm, I'm a little surprised sometimes when I see people doing a job that they really hate. You see a lot of that, right? And of course you gotta take care of yourself and put a roof over your head. But I just think, you know, you're gonna be a lot more successful and a lot more nourished not just monetarily, but, but in all ways, if you can find something that you care deeply about and that's just intriguing and super cool to you, do it you know, in an organized, disciplined way, be prepared to delay gratification and, and put in some hard, some hard yards, particularly in the beginning of, of your career. But again, just, just always keep in mind that it's a longer arc, right? And if you decide that you want to just try to make as much money as you can so you can, you can retire and just play golf or do whatever you like at 35, good for you. But most of us are going to be working. We're going to be living a lot longer. So we're going to be working a lot longer and you might as well make it good. I love that. If your success as an entrepreneur was a recipe, 
What are the ingredients that will go into it? My two pennies on that, Samantha, for me is, you know, what's worked is the thing I mentioned, right? I, I just, I do things because they consume me and I can't help it. Like I still wake up out of bed, you know, I lurch out of bed at night, just puzzling over something, right? Trying to catch and it's something that we need to solve, something we need to do. I like that. I used to get nerved up and grumpy at myself. Like, oh, I should, you know, this is wrecking my sleep. I need to stop doing that. Now I just wake up and it just feels good. Like, ah, I care about this. You know, I can't get it out of my mind. It's like falling in love with somebody. You know, I have that same feeling about, I just can't get this thing out of my mind. That's worked for me. And the second thing is uh, delayed gratification. I, I find in my work, you have to kind of just puzzle away at something for a long while and chisel away at it quietly, right? Because yeah, you'll have little momentary surges of, of things becoming clear and, and occasional you know, moments of brilliance, however they occur, but th th those almost never, you know, the, the, it's really much more about just putting in your hundred pushups every day. Right. And so uh, I think the other thing that's worked for me is just the ability to delay gratification. And the final, going back to my mom, is I'm just, I'm willing to work harder. I, I just, and I am a competitive guy. I haven't met anybody yet who can outwork me over the long haul. We're talking about decades. You know, I, I like my work. So, and it, by the way, it's never felt like work. But, but if we're talking about what I do and how long can I do it and, and you know, can I, can I keep, keep the, uh, the intensity and, and the pressure up over long periods of time, that's also been a useful thing for me. Is part of it also working, and you said you, you, you really should enjoy your work or try to find something that you're passionate and enjoy. I mean, as an entrepreneur, you have the opportunity to build your team, right, and to choose your partners you're working with, does that play a big role in your, the sort of the happiness factor of your entrepreneurial journey? The best thing ever, Samantha, right? I mean, like you think about it, when you're, when you're building a company, we've said at Superset, you know, people ask, what's the strategy of Superset? Echoing my mom, because it's always three things. I say it's, it's people, product, customers in that order, which is to say, it starts with people, right? picking people and, and then we say who are we looking to hire at superset we want smart hard-working nice people no brilliant jerks by the way i in my when i was a puppy and i did you know we had some brilliant jerks and, and we've learned you know just somebody who can just get the job done keep showing up has some grit has some resilience and that's my advice for anybody listening you know you got to be willing and able to just you know, keep going, right? Those are the people who really rise up and succeed. And those are the people that we want to work with. And yeah, that's, that's the best part. Honestly, that's the best part of my job. It's just being able to learn from and work with people we like. I agree hundred percent. So Tom, thank you so much for this amazing conversation. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at Nasdaq Center podcast. The Lehigh at Nasdaq Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the Nasdaq Entrepreneurial Center. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu and follow us on Instagram. We are at Lehigh Nasdaq Center.
If you enjoyed today's conversation with Tom, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content. Be sure to join us to hear my conversation with Liz Maida, the co-founder and CEO of Uplevel Security. We will discuss her experience as an entrepreneur and the importance of cybersecurity in today's world.